You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 101. Hey there, folks. Chris Lester here. Welcome to season three of The Raven and the Writing Desk. We're going to kick things off with an interview episode. A few weeks ago, I got together with author and podcaster Paul Cooley to talk about his new science fiction horror series, Derelict. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find my work at chrislester.org. And I am here in the virtual studio today with Paul E. Cooley. Paul is a writer and podcaster from Houston, Texas. He produces psychological thrillers and horror stories in a variety of genres. His best-selling novel, The Black, won the Parsec Award for Best Podcast Novel. And he has 14 other books currently in print. His new book is called Derelict Marines, and it is on sale now. Paul Cooley, welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. So why don't you start out by telling us a bit about this book and what it's about and how it came to be. I'm a big fan of sci-fi horror, like huge fan. And I basically wanted to start writing a science fiction universe. Didn't necessarily have to have a lot of horror in it, but I thought it'd be nice to kick off the first series for the universe with something in the sci-fi horror genre. So I came up with an idea of Derelict, which is basically a ship called the Mira was sent out from Soul System to go hunt for new resources because humankind is running out of them. We've mined the the asteroid belt. We've mined uh, all the moons. Basically, humankind's only got like 150 years of time left, and then it's all gone. So all humankind got together to build this ship and send it out. It was supposed to travel to Proxima Centauri. Seven years into its mission, it disappeared. It stopped sending radio transmissions. It stopped uh, talking back. They're sending any kind of reports. And so humankind kind of fell apart after that because they had pinned all their hopes on this. 43 years later, they find her floating, coming back into Sol system through the Kuiper belt, which is uh, the belt that stretches from Neptune, supposedly all the way to the Oort cloud. So they send a group of Marines, a search and rescue vessel called Black, out to go past Pluto, go get her, find out what happened, and tow her back to Neptune. Hilarity ensues from there. So the first book is Marines, which gives us an idea of uh, how these folks live, introduces us to the characters, and we start to get the idea that the AIs, the sentient artificial intelligences that are are at work supposedly to help them, have their own agenda, as well Mm -hmm. as the soul system government has its own agenda, and the Marines are caught between two warring agendas, not to mention the fact that they are not given the information, what happened to Mira, and what's on it. So it's one of those books where it's going to be a bottle book. Everybody, I mean, they're, they're, they're so far away from everything. They're one AU, one astronomical unit for Pluto, which is where the nearest space station is that they could even dock at. They're on their own completely. There is no help available. And once things kind of start to go wrong, they have to rely on their own wits and weapons and the bare information the artificial intelligences have sent along, and they can no longer trust the AI on their own ship. So hilarity ensues in all sorts of all the all the cool ways that drive suspense. And hopefully there's enough element of foreboding and gloom out there since there's almost no sunlight and Mira itself. There are no lights, no gravity, no life support, nothing. 
So it would be mm. as dark as you could possibly get with only a few lights to guide you through the ship. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, people seem to be enjoying it. I'm wrapping up the second book right now called Tomb. And uh, the third book will follow hopefully within uh, three to four months. Nice. That's a pretty fast turnaround. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time author now, so I can spend the time to do what needs to be done to get this series out there. And since I'm a cliffhanger ambassador, I like to get the books out as short an order as possible. So I don't have listeners and readers basically chasing me with pitchforks. <laughs> nice. How does your release model work? Do you put out the ebook and then podcast it, or do you podcast first and then release it? Or and where does the audiobook fit in? The pay audiobook. Oh boy, the audiobook. Ooh. Derelict is published by Sever Press. Derelict Saga is published by Sever Press, uh, who also did the Black. And I have a really good working relationship with them. It's it's been incredible. It kind of put me on the map. But the way I figured out things is most of my listeners know me, or most of my content consumers, if you will, know me from the podcast. I've been running for eight years. Mm -hmm. So the most important part after I finish the draft is I immediately go into audio recording. We usually don't re release the ebook and paperback of, of, the, uh, of the story until the audio book is almost ready to go, but I've had to cut that corner in the past. I also had to actually start podcasting Derelict before I could actually get the audio book finished. But I got the audiobook finished fairly quickly behind it and then put out. By the time Marines finishes its run in July, uh, the second book, Tomb, will already be available for sale in audio. And I'll already have another 35 episodes ready to drop. So basically, Derelict is going to run, I think, total. Well, it depends on how long the third book is, but it's going to be a year and a half to almost two years of content for the entire series. So I won't have to podcast anything new for quite a while. <laughs> I am totally jealous of your buffer. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, what Scott Silver has been able to do, he's got, what, three or four books now that they're still waiting to be podcast. So he's mm -hmm. got enough content to get there. I want to get to the point where I can have something like Derelict going. And then I can also have another book going in the feed at the same time. So in other words, I'll have content out quickly enough that I'll have, if, if somebody doesn't like uh, this book, they can listen to the other book or they can listen to both and then get, uh, you know, 45 minutes of content from me every week to listen to their commute home. So that's, that's kind of the idea. Got it. Does this book take place in the same world as the black or is this a completely different universe? Okay, enough said, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. Those folks who are fans of the Black Series, if they're paying attention, they're going to see certain things. And it's going to start hopefully melding the synapses. And now they're really going to know, want to know what happens in book four and five of the Black Series, which I'll get to work on as soon as I finish uh, the Derelict Saga. So there's a lot of things that are kind of dovetailing. And I would say the soul and beyond universe encompasses more than just what happens out in space. There is a history to it and why uh, humanity is where it is. And those are the things I want to play with was the evolution of politics, the evolution of society, the evolution of military, the evolution of capitalism. As people have to start moving off of Earth because of the things that we've done to it and some of the other natural disasters that are coming behind it that are like 30 or 40 years out from when the Black Books take place. And 
show my my idea of how that's going to work. I'm very interested in history, so I want to apply some of the things um, from historical perspectives and basically forecasting based on some of the things I'm talking about what would happen to humanity itself. And then this is very interesting. So is the the alien threat in the black intended to be like a metaphor for the things that we are doing to the planet? It did not start out that way, I don't think, but uh, certainly my subconscious was playing with the idea of, of oil being a, a boon and as well as a, a curse. And I spent a lot of time in the black talking about how dangerous a job it is for the people who actually get our energy for us. And making it as dangerous as possible is not the great way to do it. We have all these other technologies we could be investing in. We have solar, we have wind, we are fighting it so hard in this country. I don't know why. Well, yeah, I do know why it's all about economics. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is, is that the black is what happens when our chief energy source suddenly becomes the most terrifying thing that we could possibly imagine. And we can't tell the difference between what real oil is and what this creature is and what it would do to the mm -hmm. economy ultimately and what it would do to humanity if suddenly the stuff stopped pumping. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 going to be fun to get to book four and five of that and then the uh, aftermath afterwards. So I'm really looking forward to getting back to those books. Nice. So your stories take place in a wide variety of different settings. You've got the Garaga stuff going back to ancient Mesopotamia. You've got derelict going into the far future. What are the common threads that tie your work together? What are the themes and ideas that you find yourself returning to over and over again? Wow, that's an interesting question. I would say human relationships more than anything else. And also humanity's relationship with religion mm. is a, a big part of that, how it shapes society. You know, Mesopotamia is so fascinating because they had 50 gods. Everything was cool and groovy. The Akkadians come in and, and take over from the Sumerians. They added one god, Marduk. And everybody was still okay with it. And, that, and the only reason the Akkadian Empire died was because it was spent the entire time at war, 270 years. Hmm. And that, they sound like a metaphor for the United States. I really think that basically that's where the United States is going. So the Akkadians crumbled, <laughs> and then the Babylonians took over. Still no religious strife until the Babylonians collapsed. And then you started getting the rise of Judaism. You started getting the rise of Christianity, and after that, Islam. And you can see the difference of what happened when patriarchal religions basically took over that area. And it's not real difficult to see the impact today. So looking at that, you trade God for, for capitalism. You trade the way that we worship money these days as opposed to spirituality. And it basically comes down to the same thing. You have all this strife that goes on. You've got class warfare. You've got everything else. You've got humanity at, at each other's throats rather than worrying about how we're going to survive as a species. And so I guess that what I like to do, whether it's with the Garaga series or the Black or Derelict or Tony Downs or any of the other things I've written, is to discuss how humans deal with those situations and that there is no black and white, good or bad. It's just all people doing what they do. So it's just a matter of uh, kind of putting that into perspective and trying to imagine what they would do in those situations. So why horror? What is it about this genre that keeps you coming back to it in all these different forms? I really don't know. Um, 
it's really funny you know somebody's like uh you need to write a romance i was like i did i wrote lovers and they're like well yeah but everybody died at the end <laughs> but i mean i could say the same thing about romeo and juliet i could say the same thing about so many great romances that we see the tragic romance it's just kind of runs through us and i think that that idea of people living together, fighting together, and having something, some large stake, it sometimes is the small conflicts. My favorite part about closet treats is a guy who's mentally ill and is doing his best to hold his life together. The two most important people to him in his life are his wife and his boy. And the stakes are huge for him. They're larger than any of the characters in the black or any of the characters in derelict. Fighting for humanity, that's like trying to imagine having a trillion dollars. Your brain can't compute that. It just can't. You fight for the ones you love. You fight for the ones that are around you. Those are the ones you try and keep safe from the things that go bump in the night. And those are the most interesting relationships, for me anyway, is when people are put into situations where everything that they value, everything that, that identifies them, everything they hold dear is put at risk. Suspense is a great place to play in that arena. And as much as I would like to get back to writing something literary at some point, literary, I think I keep coming back to that point because it's where you get to throw people into a broiler and then see how they have to survive and maybe the things that change them along the way. Mm. So we have a question on the Facebook event. Ariok Morningstar asks, this is your first sci-fi series. What challenges have you encountered writing futuristic versus historical or contemporary fiction? Oh, Ariok, you're such a person, you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, I would take issue with this is the first sci-fi. I think the black is sci-fi. But this is definitely the first space thing I've written, beside the two stories I wrote for uh, Scott Sigler. The, I think the biggest difference is that there's no real touchstones because I can look back through history, I can look at the events, and I can fill in the gaps. When you're writing stuff that's far future, you really don't have that ability to look backward, but you can look backward and then apply forward. But the science fiction stuff, you have to make a decision to fish or cut bait on things like artificial gravity, faster than light drives, which are not in derelict at all in any way, shape, fashion, or form, and other things you have to worry about. How do you protect the bodies from cosmic rays? What kind of shielding do you use to do these things? As much as our government likes to talk about going to Mars, we haven't solved any of these problems yet. Right. We can send some people to Mars. They're going to be dead when they get there until we solve these problems. And so you have to make these decisions. Well, how are we going to solve these or how do I think we'll solve these in the future based on where I think the technology is going now? So you kind of get in this role of a futurism to a certain extent. Now, the damn NASA people keep trying to screw my universe up every day by finding new stuff out there. And the uh, physicists are always <laughs> finding new stuff. And it puts a lot of pressure on you because it's like, yeah, all right, great. This derelict saga was really, really cool idea for two years before the shit he talked about finally started showing up in the real world. It, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's maddening at times. But I, I was going to ask how things have been shaped by the discovery of that new Earth-like planet near what, Proxima Centauri. What Earth-like planet? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the constant issue is... You have to do the futuristic stuff, and then also I have to look at the research coming out and saying, okay, well, how is this going to affect this or that or the other? Thus far, I've been lucky. They have not put anything out there that basically says the entire premise of Derelict is silly. So far. Now, that could change next week. <laughs> right. 
And as mad as it makes, well, it doesn't make me mad. It, it, it just sits there and it makes me go, what am I doing with my life? Why am I bothering? But at the same time, I think it's so cool. I follow all that stuff and the science, just like I still follow all the things that they're discovering about our ocean, which I think in some ways is, is, is even more important than space right now. Mm-hmm. And I can get to that later if somebody wants to talk about that. But it is both a boon that we are in this era of uh, all the science that is going on. Hopefully it won't get stamped out by certain individuals or, or movements, but that we're able to see some of the answers to these questions that just bring up more questions. It's right. more things for us to ask. It's more things for us to search and it's more things for us to think about. And I love that. I love that about science fiction. I love that about science. I love that about, you know, basically seeing where people are, are thinking where, where, because by looking at where, where people are searching for what they're searching for and how they're searching for it, I think we get a better idea of the human condition and how we're going to evolve in the next uh, couple hundred years. Well, that was a long rambling answer. <laughs> so you've been writing and releasing your fiction for eight years. What's the most important lesson that you've learned about being a writer that you wish you had known when you started this? Don't do it. Um, well, I think the biggest part of that was I wish I had been a better editor of my own work way back when. And if we're going to go further back than that, I attended Colorado State University, was was in the writing program there, won a grant for one of my short stories. And I think the biggest problem I had at that time was was just plain arrogance. Mm. And I kind of fought through that again the first two years, first first two or three years I was doing this. And now it's kind of like I look back at it and I'm like, you, you idiot. You could have done so many more things. You could have, if you hadn't been such a jackass, you'd have been able to do all this other stuff. And so now I, I do my best to be as humble as possible, sometimes to my detriment about my work, about what I do and everything else. But it's always, uh, I like to think of Dave Mustaine from, from Megadeth who said, there's always someone out there who's going to be faster than you are. And he was talking about, mm. you know, speed metal. So no matter how good you are, there's always going to be somebody out there that's better than you. And that's fine. That just means you need to shoot higher. You need to work harder. You need to think differently. You need to learn from everything that you do so you can apply it to the next story, the next book, the next audio broadcast. You have to keep doing self-evaluation. And I do a lot of that. I just wish I'd done it a lot earlier in my career. Can you give an example of a door that was closed because of that problem when you were starting out? Uh, I don't know the door closing so much, but as popular, for instance, as Tattoo was and still is, the 20,000 words that are out there, that could have been a 40,000 word book. That could have been a 50,000 word book if I hadn't been in such a hurry to get it done. The audio, if I paid so much more attention to it, would have been so much more popular if I had spent the time to actually edit it rather than just get it out there. If I'd done my homework on broadcasts and everything else. And I think that hurt me. I think it did drive some people away from the podcast. No matter how good the story is, and you and I both know this, if the narrator is crap, people aren't going to listen to it. It's just basically the way it is. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be people who are going to like my style of narration that are going to hate my style of narration. I can't do much about that. No one's going to like everything what we do. The best we can do is basically do our best. And I think by not doing that early on, it definitely did hurt me going forward. And I, I think there's probably some people eight years later now who are going, you know, 
oh, that Cooley guy's at it again or this, that, or the other. Yeah, his his early stuff was shit, so I'm not going to take a chance on that. And that's that's a problem, but it is what it is. I mean, it's history, and all I can do is basically try to make sure I'm, I'm doing what I can from here on out to make sure that I did my best. Right. So last year you made, it was last year you made the decision to go full-time, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we can all imagine some obvious pros and cons to that decision, but (laughs) has there been anything about giving up the day job that surprised you? I miss people. I miss people. (laughs) I think that's the, it's so funny because I, I have, I have social anxiety, but the thing is I like people as much as I do horrible things to them in my books. I actually enjoy people. I like to hear them talking. I like to stop every 30 to 40 minutes and bug one of my coworkers, especially if they've been head down in something too long and make a joke, get everybody laughing, pull them away from their work for a second and make them remember that that's just some automaton, you know, working in a factory. And now all I can do is basically when I have an idea is sit down with a dog and have a long conversation with her. She'll pay attention and wag her tail so long as I'm, you know, stroking her head. So it, it makes me feel like I'm getting through to her. Uh, we've had lots of great conversations. So the cats will occasionally uh, uh, submit to that kind of treatment as well. But it uh, <laughs> it is a big difference when you're not collaborating with other humans. Writing is such a lonely, solitary activity that I've trained myself to write in bars. I've trained myself to write at restaurants. Uh, just because the feeling of people around me kind of helps ground me and, and allows me to go forward. So I think the, the loneliness is the thing I really didn't quite grasp was going to be a problem. And I'm adjusting slowly but surely, but uh, every once in a while, I just have to say, you know, this morning at 1030, I'm going to my favorite bar when it opens and they save me a seat there. I sit at the bar, I drink iced tea for three or four hours and I get a couple thousand words down. And it's wonderful, but that's those are the things the the strategies I've been using to just kind of get around that problem. Nice. What advice would you give to other writers who are thinking about going full time? Uh, what factors would you ask them to consider before they make their decision? Oh boy, this is not some kind of gig where you sit down and you can write for eight straight hours. This is not some kind of gig where every day you feel like you accomplished this task. This is not some kind of gig that is a sprint. It is a marathon, especially if you're writing novels. Every day you're, you know, sweating over new details or anything else. It's just the work is less of an escape. When when I had a full-time job, the the writing part was an escape from all the corporate bullshit that went on every day. No wonder I'm so evil to people in my books. Fighting that getting away from it, finding that escape, creating your own world to basically step out of it was self-therapy for me. When you're doing it full time, it doesn't quite have that same effect because now those worlds are your job. Those worlds become how you make money. And it requires quite a bit of a shift in how you think. However, that said, the economic realities you have got to take note of. It is really difficult to go from making a six-figure salary to suddenly making, you know, $18,000 a year or whatever it is. And people get lucky. People get really lucky. And sometimes when they start doing this, they're going to make 50, 60 grand a year just off their writing. It's possible. I I know people would do it. Not all of us are going to be able to do that. 
not everybody is going to be able to do that in any way, shape, fashion, or form. It just depends on what you're writing, how you're writing, what your process is, and how lucky you get. And how fast you can write. And how fast you can write. That's the other thing. I know folks who put out a book a month like Jake Bible. I know people who who uh, do another one like every two months like Terry Mixon, my, my mate on uh, the Robot Society. And they're successful doing it. But man, it is, it's rough. It's rough for them. And if you can't keep up that kind of pace with things, you better have a spouse who's got an income or you better have saved up quite a bit of money to make up for the shortfalls while you're getting things done. And then, of course, you got to worry about health insurance and all that other shit that goes on. And then, of course, when you suddenly become a stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home wife or stay-at-home person, you will always find shit that you've got to do around the house or anything else you've been putting off for years while you were stumbling through the corporate job. Yep. So yeah, it 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 uh, it isn't like you just suddenly walk out of your job, you go to the house, you fire up your computer, and suddenly, hey, everything's cool and groovy. It takes a lot of self discipline. It takes a very big um, switch in in how you think about what you do and what you're trying to do. So I would say you. Do not make this switch lightly. It is not just going to be going from zero to 90 miles an hour. It takes a while to ramp up. What do you think is your biggest strength as an author? Do I have strengths? Supposedly, I'm good at suspense. Supposedly, I'm good at getting people to turn, keep turning the page. Supposedly, I'm, I'm good at ending a chapter so somebody goes, God damn it, Cooley, and they have to go to the next one. I've learned how to do the cliffhangers and the podcasts, and therefore, I translated that over to the novels. And as much as hate mail as I get for those little cliffhangers, what I also get is you made me look forward to the next chapter. You made me look forward to the next uh, book. You made me look forward to the next event that is going to occur because I cared about the characters and because I cared about the story. I wanted to see how this was going to shake out. And I think that we're storytellers and it doesn't matter how academic or literary the writing is at the end of the day, if you don't tell a good story, nobody's going to care. So I like to think that I tell good stories. I like to think I, I create good characters. Some of them are annoying. Some of them are, are ones you fall in love with and there's reasons for creating both. And I'd like to think that that's where the strength lies. Of course I could be self-deluded probably am, but I think that's probably my greatest strength. And what's your best uh, piece of advice for writers who want to do suspense better? Oh, man. Study. Study your ass off. I like to say this on, on DRS. If there's a genre you like, you better be reading that genre. If that's the genre you want to write in. You better be looking at the people who have succeeded in it and then try and figure out why they succeeded at it. And I do that by tearing apart the books. I read a book for pleasure. And then if it's something that I think I want to try and learn some lessons from, I will tear it apart, critically looking at how the plot was constructed, what made the characters live and breathe for me, and then try and learn how to emulate that. Of course, I don't want to ape somebody else's work. I want to steal as much as I can and apply it to my own style, my own storytelling, my own way of working things around. And I think no matter what genre you're in or what genres you're in, I think you have to do that as a reader. You have to do that as a storyteller, even a TV series. You know, if you really love Game of I hate the books, but if you like really love Game of Thrones, I can't stand R.R. Martin's writing. Sorry, can't stand his style. Nobody needs 30 pages about fucking Bannerman and flags. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to get eviscerated. 
the series though and the series like justified and uh, breaking bad some of my favorite tv series i like to look at how and what they're doing with the characters to stretch these things out and make it so that you will come back every week so that when the season ends, you're pissed off because you have to wait three or four months or sometimes a year before the next installments drop. I want to learn what they're doing there. And with serialized work such as yours, you have the same opportunity. If that's the kind of stuff that you like, it's got the same kind of flow to it. And you have to do the same kind of studies to it. You have to basically tear it apart. You have to look at what you're doing and try and apply those things. Hopefully they become second nature. So you're not really having to think about it. But I think early on, you have to make the effort to understand why those stories affected you, what those authors are doing that strikes you as a reader, as a consumer of the content. And you kind of have to get a better feeling for how that works. And what are some tools or resources that you've used to help you learn how to do that, how to tear things apart and analyze why they work? Well, okay. So in college, I was taught, took several classes on literary criticism. When you get a literature degree, it's pretty much all about tearing apart this stuff anyway, looking at what was going on at the time, historically, looking at the context of the writer, maybe trying to look at what their personal history was to see how they were applying these things. Once you do that, as much as it can ruin some really good stories for you, once you start doing that and looking at how the stuff was put together, it's really easy to go in and tear things apart. Stephen King's The Shining, for instance, is a really good one to imagine. I read that book so many freaking times because I just was amazed at how it made me feel in places. It creeped me out. It made me terrified to go to sleep. And it also entertained the hell out of me at the same time. The tools come with looking at scene by scene, looking at how an action scene, for instance, is put together, if you're going to put that in a suspense book, what are the beats? What are the, the stakes that the characters have? What is the goal of each scene for the characters in the scene? The goal can be simply as, as you know, simple as, uh, I want that piece of candy. It could also be, I want to stay alive. There's always these little pieces that you have to look at, what the characters need, what the plot needs to, to drive it forward. And it's just a matter of, of sitting down and doing some analysis on it. And to look at the other side of things, what is a challenge or weak spot in your writing that you're currently working to overcome? Believe they choppy freaking sentences choppy sentences are wonderful if you're in a an action scene or you're trying to basically get somebody to just read as quickly as possible you want to give the frenetic feel of we're under attack so you're going to use shorter sentences you're not going to use long drawn out ones my problem is i've gotten so good at it that it leaks into normal scenes and i have to go back and really split these things up i don't like long sentences but man <laughs> You've got to go back and clean them up. And sometimes it's it's repeating yourself. And sometimes it's basically, instead of foreshadowing, basically allowing the reader to kind of figure out things themselves and be surprised by it. Too much revealing that to them directly. And those are things I have to really watch out for, especially in Derelict, because I've gotten into some bad habits. I don't know how that happened, but it did. So like with Tomb, what I'm editing right now, I'm having to go back and clean up a whole lot of things. Mm. Also, the words crimson wan sighing and nodding those are all really really tough ones for me to get away from <laughs> i don't know why but they are 
And my editor screams at me every time that they're found in, in the work and I get ugly notes and everything else. So I'm going back, cleaning that up, taking out some language that's inappropriate to the scene. For some reason in this book, I use damn like 175 times. I just got to go in there and cut that stuff out. I don't know why it's there, but it did. That's the way the, the voices sounded in my head when I was writing it. So because I always put myself in those positions. Well, what I do if there's like an alien sitting above me, uh, you know, and I'm trying to get away from it. Guess what? I'm going to use some profanity, probably a lot of it. But military action in general, you're going to see a lot of profanity. Yes. Oh, yes. One of the first reviews for Marines was, uh, I don't understand why all military science fiction has to have all these F-bombs and this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, have you ever been in the military? Have you ever been around people in the military? You know, <laughs> the F-bomb is used as an adjective, a pronoun, a noun, a verb, an adverb. I mean, every possible configuration you can imagine, it is used. Sometimes in every sentence. So you kind of have to... You have to figure out where the lines of demarcation are on how realistic you want to make it. Because at some point, it just turns into noise. And you can choose to either make that a, the point or mm -hmm. you can kind of basically string those out in such a way that when they are used, they actually have power. And that that is a tough mode to get into. And I, I'm trying to apply that very much in Derelict. I've got some very salty folks in this group. So trying to find some ways for them to express their displeasure and a little more, more creative ways of profanity or terms together, metaphors, whatever that they might say. Trying to put that in there as opposed to taking just the easy way out of dropping an F-bomb every sentence. There are still going to be points that that happens. I read a scene today in, in Tomb where I was like, is that really? Just yeah, that's justified. What about? Yeah, that's justified. What about this? Well, it's errant, but I like it. So, you know. <laughs> You kind of have to pick and choose your battles on that, but it's always trying to figure out what exactly the language needs to be for these characters. And you have to kind of think a reader's sensibility a little bit. Right. Let's talk about business for a minute. Your publishing imprint is Shadow Publications at shadowpublications.com. Have you structured that as an LLC or a corporation, or are you still operating as a sole proprietorship? Still operating as a sole proprietorship. I'll probably turn it into an LLC later this year, but I think it's going to be uh, Angry Puppet Entertainment will probably be the name of the LLC. We'll see. Those folks who know me uh, know why it's called Angry Puppet Entertainment, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that that's probably going to be the flagship because there's some other things I want to do other than just shadowpublications.com. I want to branch out a little bit more. I, I would like to be known for more than just a quote-unquote horror writer. And as I've been told over and over again, I don't really write horror horror as it were because too many people think it's just gore and, and masked people with chainsaws chasing teenagers around so it, i like to be a little bit more suspenseful i'd rather creep you out than uh just uh gross you, out. you yeah good gross you out with torture porn that's just not my idea of, of fun but there, there's some other things i want to do and and so there's there's gonna be some other opportunities for other imprints and i i actually love being a hybrid writer at this point being published by both the small press and having my own press because I can choose to do some of these things just out of love and see what happens with them. And then there's other things where it's like, oh, we got to pay the bills this month. Yes, I better write another book for, you know, another commercial book. So right. there's there's a lot of trade-offs that go into that. And there's a lot of thinking you have to do. And yeah, LLC is definitely the way I'll be going in the future. What are you working on next? What can we look forward to in the coming year? Finishing up Derelict. Uh, I think... 
the third book is tentatively titled Destruction. So it'll be Derelict Destruction. I think we're going to wrap up the series with that book, but I'm uncertain because I have a bad feeling there's going to be some threads that need to be tied up and people already want a book about Mira and what happened to her on her journey. So I have to kind of think about that. But I think you can expect me to also put out a book called Signal Decay, which will be another future sci-fi thing that happens in the soul and beyond universe. And um, it involves the moon Iapetus, which is uh, one of Saturn's least well-known moons. Go look it up. It looks like the freaking Death Star. I want to put a story there because, well, I just want to put a story there and I've got some interesting ideas for it. I've started working on it. I've got three books right now, not including Tomb, that are all over 20,000, 30,000 words. And I just have not finished them because I had to move things around to get other projects done. So Derelict will be done this year, I hope. And as soon as that's done, then I'll go back to working on Signal Decay or the fourth installment of The Black, which is Evolution. So those are the things I'm, I'm mainly targeting for this year. Do you have any convention appearances scheduled for this year? Only Balticon, which you will be at as well. So yes, yeah. I will. Yes, you will. Just like every year. So yes, it'll. That's the only one I've got besides a uh, staple in Austin in September, which is more of a uh, an expo. But it's a lot of fun because people come by who don't know you from anybody. They see your display. They come by and they ask you questions. And, you know, it's everybody from little 12-year-old kids to 65-year-old men and women walking around through the place. And it's a good time because you get to meet all these uh, creators that are just doing wild stuff with comic books, graphical arts, audio, film, you name it. They're there selling their stuff and talking about what they're doing. And it's just really cool to see all these independent media folk and what they're doing because I think that that's... That's what's really defining the age right now is what the independents are doing. It's starting to flow into what the corporates are doing too. The whole reason Netflix and Amazon and et cetera are, are getting into the TV series game and some of these independent films is because they've realized the Hollywood model is, is screwed up. Well, the publishing model is just as screwed up, if not more so with the big five. So watching the independents do what they do, it's so raw. It's so unfiltered. It, it doesn't have some corporate lackey back there worried about how it's going to sell. It just is what it is. And I think some really great art comes out of that. I, I just love being a part of that at that expo. It's a lot of fun. So that event you mentioned is uh, the Staple Expo in Austin. Correct. And that is at staple-austin.org for those who are interested in checking it out. It sounds really cool. Oh, it's a lot of fun. I started going a few years ago. Robert Stickmans is a writer in Austin who also kind of got me published to begin with. He he started taking me to it uh, years and years ago when we shared a table. And it's just been it's just been so much fun. It's just an excuse to hang out in Austin and see some really wild things. So it's it's a cool time. It's a good time. Bring a lot of money because spend a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find your stuff, Paul? Where can you find me? You can find my podcast at shadowpublications.com. Derelict is running on iTunes under Derelict Marines, as well as the main feed, shadowpublications.com. You can become a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash Paul E. Cooley and get uh, exclusive story bits, reviews. My Patreon folk are going to be getting a beta uh, version of Tomb next week if I can get this sucker put to bed. I mean, also, we get uh, a monthly hangout with me. See my ugly mug. 
and ask questions kind of like this interview, for instance. I also am on, on Amazon, have an Amazon author page. Facebook, Paul E. Cooley is his author page. Paul Ellard Cooley, I think, is my normal Facebook stuff. I'm on Twitter at Paul underscore E underscore Cooley is there as well. I'm on Audible. I'm everywhere. All you got to do is just search for Paul E. Cooley and you will find me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on The Raven and the Writing Desk. It was great to have you. Oh, this was awesome. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that was our interview. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't have a weekly writing report this week. Instead of writing, I spent this week getting the audio files ready for the Divine Intervention audiobook. I spent about 11 hours on this, and roughly another 11 hours doing a test listen to the audiobook. On Saturday night, I submitted the files to Audible for approval. Hopefully the book will pass through quality control quickly, and be on sale in time for Balticon. This week I also made the decision to pull my novels and story collections off of Smashwords. I pulled my latest sales report, and I discovered that only one copy of one of my books had been sold through a Smashwords affiliate since the beginning of 2017. I've now put all four books on KDP Select, so if you're on Kindle Unlimited, you'll be able to read my books there very soon. After my initial KDP Select period expires, which I think is six months, I'll probably go wide with the books again, but I'm planning on using draft to digital instead of Smashwords. I'll let you know when that happens. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes, or support the show on Patreon by making a monthly pledge. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.